0: Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host, Cherie Harder. This month we begin a special series on our podcast called Discovery and Doxology, Conversations on Faith and Science. In partnership with the Templeton Religion Trust, BioLogos, and Church of the Advent, we're releasing four conversations between scientists, philosophers, and theologians to help us explore the relationship between science and faith. It's our aim to introduce you to some of the brightest scientific and theological lights of our own generation, and to help you think wisely and well. The conversations have been pre-recorded and edited for clarity and length, but you can find each of the full recordings on our website at ttf.org. With that, here's today's conversation. Today, we are wrestling with a very different topic looking at the implications of technological advances that some believe have the power to enhance improve even remake what it means to be human new discoveries made within the fields of artificial intelligence or ai as well as within biotechnology holds thrilling promise for everything from reducing global poverty the creation of entirely new industries the development of more sustainable agriculture and the reduction of hunger, the elimination of certain diseases, and massive improvements in health, wealth, human performance, and even cognition. But with any technology or extraordinary uh, a tool of extraordinary power, there's also the potential for disruption or distortion. In the biomedical world, the technology that can help eliminate cystic fibrosis, can also be used to alter the gene line of future generations and even potentially create new hybrid creatures. And the AI advances that have brought us such incredibly helpful user-friendly assistance like Siri and Alexa may, according to some thinkers like Ray Kurzweil, lead potentially to the possibility of merging with or even being mastered by a superior machine intelligence such that our very idea of what it means to be human is transformed. In many ways, some have said that we stand at the precipice of a brave new world. And like the characters in Algis Huxley's novel, it's all too easy to remain distracted from the serious questions that our technologies pose. And so it's a real privilege to welcome our guest today both of whom thought long and deeply about both the promises of new AI technology, the hopes and the philosophies that guide its development from their various and respective positions as a scientist inventor in one case and a philosopher and theologian in the other to help us think more wisely and faithfully about the inevitable questions that are raised by life and society altering new technologies. So, I'm so pleased to introduce first Richard Mao. Richard is a theologian, philosopher, and senior research fellow at the Paul Henry Institute for the Study of Christianity and Politics at Calvin College, and previously served as the president of Fuller Seminary for over 20 years. He has written many, many works. I think it's at least 19, possibly more, including Uncommon Decency, Christian Civility in an Unchristian World, or Uncivil World, rather. Pluralisms and Horizons, He Shines in All That's Fair, Praying at Burger King, Calvinism at the Las Vegas airport, and many others. He has served as the president of the Association of Theological Schools and six years as the co-chair of the Reformed Catholic Dialogue and has been awarded the Abraham Kuyper Prize for Excellence in Reformed Theology in Public Life by Princeton Seminary. Joining Rich is Rosalind Picard. And Rosalind is a scientist and engineer, a professor at the MIT Media Lab, where she is also the founder and the director of the Affective Computing Research Group. She has also co-founded two companies, including Affectiva, which provides emotion AI technologies now used by more than a quarter of the global Fortune 500, as well as Empatica, Which provides wearable sensors and analytics to improve health and created the first FDA-approved smartwatch for epilepsy patients, a company where she also serves as chief scientist as well as chairman of the board. She has helped launch the field of wearable computing, has authored or co-authored more than 300 peer-reviewed articles spanning effective computing, AI, and digital health, is an elected member of the National Academy of Engineering, serves on the Board of Advisors for Scientific American, is an active inventor with numerous patents and a sought after speaker whose TED talk has generated more than 2 million views. So Rich and Rosalind, welcome. It's great to have you here.
1: It's such a pleasure.
0: Absolutely. Well, we'll just sort of dive in at the very beginning, and because uh, I've just thrown around a a number of terms, effective computing and transhumanism, all of which could probably use better definition, Rosalind, I'd just love to hear from you, first of all, more about your field of effective computing, what it is, what AI means, what transhumanism means, and how they all relate to each other.
1: Thanks, Sherry. That's a a tall order. Affective computing is computing that relates to, arises from, or deliberately influences emotion. Uh, Very practically, it's been motivated by trying to give computers more of the skills of emotional intelligence, social-emotional intelligence, uh, not just the mathematical and verbal kinds of intelligence, uh, with the goals of making interactions with computers being a lot less stressful and less frustrating and annoying. The uh, transhumanism is a topic that actually in my area of research, we don't usually use that term, but my understanding is it's kind of a loosely defined movement that does encompass a lot of what we do build, uh, where I work at MIT and the media lab and in the fields of AI and, and affective computing. The main, uh, loose definition I might give is a movement that is inspired by trying to improve the human condition, curing or eradicating disease, trying to eliminate unnecessary suffering and augment ourselves in ways that in our lab have been focused mostly on alleviating a lot of the challenges of disability. Uh, but when we may, we may start with a physical prosthesis or a cognitive prosthesis or an emotional prosthesis And from there, we may go from simply giving a person who doesn't have legs legs to walk to giving a person legs to run faster than any person can run. So in some cases it can enhance human performance. And then sometimes we talk well beyond that with a bit of rhapsody about how we might uh, augment humans. And and we use a lot of technical jargon or geeky jargon like upgrading ourselves or human 2.0 and making, us into something that is more than what we uh, are today. And that may not just be enhancing these abilities, but maybe there's some kind of superhuman future. Uh, And, you know, could, would that be an AI? Would that be some kind of combination of us and AI? Uh, And then on top of that, I hear from a lot of my colleagues, especially non religious colleagues, a real interest in prolonging life and achieving something like eternal life, but without God, uh, so it ranges from everything from you know giving somebody legs to you know, and one might even look at a wheelchair as a kind of transhumanism, where you're adding to a human uh, and um, going on to something that exceeds us.
0: Now oh, that is fascinating. You, know, you indicate there that at you know, some uh, in some quarters there is even a discussion about uh, immortality and uh, eternal life and transhumanism. While uh, dealing with technology, has been called in many ways a-, a philosophy. And so, Rich, I'd love to hear from you as, as someone who is a philosopher as well as a theologian, very uh, concerned with questions of immortality and eternal life. Uh, how you became interested in um, in, in this philosophy, and what the implications are, um, you know, as a theologian.
2: Yeah, thanks, Sherry. It's just great to be be with you, and, uh, you know, I, I, I did my PhD at the University of Chicago back in the late 60s, before uh, many of those who are listening and watching us today were born, but uh, in those days, there was, and uh, my area of specialty was the uh, philosophies, uh, philosophical understandings of human consciousness. Mm-hmm. And all of this was generated in the larger social, the scientific world by uh, B.F. Skinner and behaviorism, uh, that there are no such things as minds over and above overt behavior. Uh, that also got picked up in the philosophical world as a uh, discussion that was kicked off by Gilbert Ryle Uh, Book called The Concept of Mind, in which he says we no longer uh, believe in a ghost and a machine, Uh, some kind of uh, consciousness that is non-physical, that uh, is at somehow the center of things. And a later version of uh, that discussion was uh, something called central state materialism, or uh, brain-mind identity theory, where whatever we we ordinarily refer to as mental events are really uh, sort of electrical electronic firings in the brain and, and this kind of thing you know uh, so there was a lot of interest in what we philosophical uh, discussions often talked about the the, the nature of human composition of, of what a what is a human being made and composed and in those days, some of the practical questions were raised in a fascinating discussion that were well well beyond now. But minds and machines. There were books written on that. There were projects devoted to that. And uh, dealing with questions like this: can a, can a computer really play chess? <laughs> that was a big issue in a seminar that I took in, in grad school. Well, there, were, there were some philosophers. There was a well-known philosopher at Berkeley, uh, Hubert Dreyfus, who, who argued that. Minds, uh, there are minds, there is consciousness in that uh, human beings play games in, in a different way than a machine could ever play a game. In fact, strictly speaking, machines don't play games. Uh, they, they consider options and, and go through various possible moves and eliminate ones until they finally have one that works. But, but human beings just look at the board and, and we just see what an appropriate move would, would be uh, in that. So there, that was an interesting discussion in, in those days. And it, it got me thinking about a lot of this theologically, as later on I, I got into the world of theological education, taught courses of, of theological anthropology, of theology of human nature. And one of the big issues in in theology has been the debate over whether human beings are totally bodily, uh, anticipating a bodily resurrection, or whether there's a part of us that goes to be with the Lord even when our body dies, and all of those kinds of questions, and a lot of debates over how you understand passages of Scripture and and the like. but really getting at many of the same issues, and that is how do we explain uh, our conscious lives metaphysically, theologically, in the light of what the Bible teaches, and uh, I continue to be very fascinated by that. Transhumanism is, is really opening up the possibility that, and, and much of it is kind of materialistic or physicalistic, and that is that there is nothing, of, uh, there's not kind of an extra physical, outside of the physical consciousness but that our brain states are replicatable or at least uh, parallel states in a computer program. Uh, in fact, we might eventually be able to upload our brains into a computer program and achieve a kind of eternal life uh, uh, that way. So the metaphysical issue of whether we're purely physical beings or whether there's something over and above the physical, I think, yeah. Uh, is is one of the issues at stake in the kinds of thinking that uh, Rosalind so so nicely summarized for us.
0: That is fascinating. I mean, you um, you refer to you know the potential at some point to essentially upload our brains and achieve immortality, and um, you know there's certainly kind of a recurring science fiction theme of, you know, the idea of runaway technology, you know, of kind of going into crazy t- territory of being dominated by or even destroyed uh, by our tools or trying to become God in this way. A- and there, there does seem to be at least some real life basis for this fear. You know, technology does seem to have its own imperatives at times. Uh, it certainly seems to have an orientation towards uh, multiplying and scale and in applications, sometimes outside of humane uh, considerations. And and there are some sane, as well as mad scientists, who seem to buy the idea that if it can be done, it it should be done. So starting with you, Rosalind, I'd be really interested in how optimistic or hopeful you are that around the chances of our humanely stewarding our own technologies.
1: Hmm. (laughs) This is about optimism and um, human behavior, which is very unpredictable. I'm an optimist in general. I also see a lot of uh, variety of behavior. And I think it's important that we really, I I guess, educate the whole person, not just educate people about technology. And and my uh, university at MIT and places you, know, you come in, you learn a whole lot about math and science and, and technology uh, and engineering. You tend to learn a little bit less, although MIT is really good about demanding a lot of humanities. Um, but a lot of technological universities, a little bit less about asking the big why kinds of questions. And recently, there is a bit more of a movement toward trying to understand uh, you know, if we're trying to make the world better, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk at the Media Lab about trying to invent a better future. And then we put a period there (laughs) and now we're trying to think more about what, you know, what does that really mean? And that means not just ethical behavior, uh, but it means really identifying a bunch of values and trying to promote those. And then when we start to look at those, we start to say, gee, are we just building this because we can, or uh, are we thinking about what the world might really um, need or what we could do? Uh, as kind of an opportunity cost, right? Instead of just building this thing because we can incrementally make it higher or faster or better, uh, what are we not building that maybe we should be thinking about building that the world might be even better off if we did? So we're trying to promote that kind of thinking now, also. Uh, and there we really need partnerships with people, with everybody in society, not just other academics, not just certainly not just other engineers, um, but everybody who's on this call could have something valuable to say to this.
0: Rich, you mentioned earlier the kind of arresting prospect of uh, downloading our minds into immortality, which um, you know, certainly grabs the attention. Uh, and you know, it makes one think, You know, as a theologian, you, you know that the first temptation, the oldest temptation in the world was the temptation to be like God, um, you know, to basically take control of one's own destiny. And so it, it seems you know, relatively easy to, to realize like that is not what we should be doing. But I'd love to ask you about just how, um, you know, the line between playing God and perhaps just creative and wise stewardship. Downloading our brains to immortality seems a pretty clear cut case, uh, but one could also argue that so many really exciting technological advances Antibiotics, vaccines, wearables, and the like, you know, are in a way all human enhancement. As a a philosopher and a theologian, do you see a a clear guideline for when we know whether we are attempting to play God?
2: Yeah, Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate your going back to Genesis 3 on this, because in many ways, in Genesis 3, in the first three chapters of Genesis, we, we see the fundamental choice. And what, what the godless version of transhumanism uh, holds is that human beings are on the way to something greater, uh, that uh, our present state uh, isn't what we will end up to be or or what we're, we're meant to be in terms of an evolutionary process. And in many ways that parallels a biblical teaching uh, that we're created in the very image of God. And Adam and Eve were created, the human race was created to grow more and more into the image of God. I mean, First John 3 has this wonderful promise, it does not yet appear what we shall be. But when he shall appear, we shall be like him. We're, we're, we're on the way to something. And Adam and Eve already were on the way to something. And if they were to flourish in that something, it would be acknowledging that they aren't gods, but they are created in the image of God, as the likeness of God. Uh, and then the tempter comes along and he says, oh, you, can, you can be your own God. You know, just sit on a throne and run the show yourself. And those are two very different images: uh, growing into the image of God, or trying to be our own gods. And you know, the the, the fallenness of, of the human race of trying to control things, trying to be our own gods has, by God's grace, uh, also produced some really good things. Rosalind mentioned wheelchairs. I mean, you know, who would want to go back to days when people who lost the control of their legs? really couldn't move around. It couldn't, couldn't get anyplace. And so there are those ways of uh, improving human nature, uh, promoting human flourishing, that the scientific technology over the centuries has, has developed and produced that we thank God for. But it's when we see ourselves as moving uh, beyond our present finite state, our present limited selves as creatures of God into something bigger than we are, uh, not guided by God's commands, by God's revelation to us and our biblical understanding of who we are. We're, we're not animals and we're not gods. We're someplace in the middle there. And uh, sometimes we define ourselves down and we try to act like animals but there's also the the sin of finding ourselves up uh defining ourselves up. Nietzsche uh, had this this German phrase the Ubermensch, the, the over man, the beyond our present uh, and 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 for him that was a I mean from our point of view it was a very bad thing that we could grow into something more like what we used to think of as God according to, to Nietzsche and that's a very dangerous thing and so, as Rosalind is much clearer and better on this than, than I am, but the, the things that enhance our understanding of who we are in the light of our understanding of God's will for human flourishing versus those sinful tendencies to want to create, create ourselves in, in some brand new way. And the big danger, technically, was uh, realized, actually, a couple of years ago by the, the Chinese uh, uh, a scientist a, a young uh, who who e- edited genes and tried to create a different kind of human being, and uh, that was generally, at, at least thus far, has been seen as an inappropriate form of transhumanism.
0: That's fascinating, um, Rosalind. I'd love to kind of ask your thoughts uh, about this, um, in that you know the, the vision. Of, of human flourishing that uh, Rich has just articulated. Uh, you know, the Christian understanding and sort of philosophical assumptions. One of the things that uh, sociologist Neil Postman talked about is that every technology includes some kind of Epistemological, political, or social bias within it. Uh, you know, so for example, it's very difficult to do philosophy by smoke signal. You know, the the very um, technology itself kind of precludes kind of abstract reasoning. Um, you know, certain social media platforms predispose us towards a certain way of both understanding and interaction. As someone who has kind of immersed herself and you know, has made incredible advances within sort of the field of effective computing and AI, are there kind of um, philosophies embedded within the technology itself that you have had to contend with uh, in the, the course of your work or um, have you found it to be more neutral?
1: it's a great question and a bunch of great points too. Lately we've been revisiting some of the language that we're using in AI and artificial intelligence and in the in the origins of it when John McCarthy first proposed the term uh, I believe it was Herb Simon had proposed an alternative term complex information processing which is actually much more accurate (laughs) for what AI is today but the term AI won out and I think not because it was more accurate because it's not really uh, but because it's more aspirational and there's something about a term that we can't achieve that inspires people to want to think beyond the limits of what is uh, you know known with existing constraints and, um, and imagine. Uh, we are I think we're made in the image of God and we are made as makers also we are makers. Um, We have makers in our lab who want to make things that make things and when when one of the things we might be able to make is an intelligence uh and you know maybe we call it artificial intelligence then even though we're not really making that it's there's something that draws people to that and that's the that's the attraction uh, of something aspirational and with that we have started to use language like oh the machine learns oh the machine thinks uh, some take a look at my work and say, oh, the machine feels. And I'm like, no, no, cross that on the headline. It does not feel. In mm-hmm. fact, we also should be very careful to say it does not think. And I love uh, Rich mentioning Dreyfus's comment. It does not play. It does not, it, it is not being in the way that we are being. It is not experiencing anything. It is not experiencing play. It is not experiencing thought. It is not experiencing feeling. It doesn't have any consciousness. Awareness. When we flip it off, it's ethical to flip it off uh, to turn off the switch, even if the machine we just switched off uh, just got a fifty thousand dollar honorarium for showing up on the Tonight Show as a female <laughs> robot looking like it had emotions, right? And um, got citizenship in Saudi Arabia. I'm referring to the Sophia robot. Uh, you know, it can it can be accorded all of these rights, almost like a publicity stunt, but it doesn't actually learn, think, play, feel, know, experience anything. It's not a living being. It is a simulation of these things that we as makers made in the image of the ultimate maker, um, you know, are making. So, I think the fact that we reuse this language that refers to us and we use it for machines gets us in a lot of trouble. It leads people to think, oh, wow, if machines can learn now and they're learning faster and given, you know, once they could add, they could do math faster than all of us. uh, You know, if they can do this, then people start extrapolating and they're afraid now that Sophia's on the Tonight Show cracking jokes and saying she's funnier than the Tonight Show host. Uh, then why can't a machine replace all of us? Um, should I just be building an AI that replaces me and builds other AIs? And as we use that language, it makes it very easy to extrapolate. And I, I think we create a lot of danger with that. If we had stuck with complex information processing and just described you know, simulations and all, uh, people wouldn't be so worried. Um, on the other hand, it wouldn't um, inspire as much uh, trying to understand humans. And ultimately, We are, you know, we use the phrase fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, It's even more awesome than that. The more we get into how people are made, you know, you you just, I just become speechless. We are so incredible. It's amazing that we work at all, that our bodies work at all. And of course, sometimes when they don't work, we appreciate that. Uh, But we are so amazing how we work. And it just remains this... um, Aspirational thing for us, so we adopt that language, and that language gets us
2: in a lot of trouble. Brings a lot of bad. Rosalind, question, um, Rosalind, uh, we've come a long way since uh, the discussion of whether uh, computers can win chess game, chess matches, uh, and they they do win. I mean, they yeah. uh, the human beings lose the game, as it were. And I think you you want to say, yeah, but do. Uh, are they rejoicing in winning? Do they get satisfaction out of that? And and one of your examples in, in your writing uh, just fascinates me. Uh, there's a robot in the kitchen, and you come down. Uh, you and, and you you're going to make coffee, and the robot says, "Good morning, Rosalind. Uh, how are you this morning?" And and you you kind of grumpy, give a grumpy answer, and then you uh, you spill some coffee, and you you say uh a, a, a word that a Christian is allowed to say when you're you're, you're and and in um, the computer the robot under sees that you aren't in a very good mood and changes its tone and uh, and and the pace with which it responds and tries to initiate conversations with you and and I mean, you we can imagine that that activity taking place that that robotic behavior occurring, but you want to say that robot isn't really concerned about you. That robot isn't really caring about you. And, and I, I'm with you on that, but I, I need help. Why not? Yeah. I mean, what, yeah. What- And
1: we can call that artificial caring, artificial empathy. And the crazy thing is when the machine does it and a person even who programs it and knows how it works, receives it, it works in the sense that it can alleviate frustration. It can help you regulate your emotion. It can help you feel better. Uh, And it doesn't really understand it. I, I can liken it to two other quick examples. One is when a human therapist is talking to another human therapist and therapist B is using a technique that therapist A knows and it helps therapist A feel better, even though therapist A knows that therapist B is just using this technique. Uh, and might just be simply thinking, okay, I'll say this to her, and we'll have this empathetic exchange, and then she'll feel better, right? And it becomes almost like running a program to do that. Uh, it, can, it can be done with true human compassion and caring. It can also be kind of simulated, even when the person might be thinking about lunch. Um, now, I would argue it's more effective <laughs> when it's real, and a real human being is, is doing this, uh, and in fact, we've had people rate empathetic responses, uh, and the only difference in one batch is that they're told they come from machines, and in the other batch, they're told they come from people, and they rate the ones that come from people higher than the ones from machine, even though they're worded the same. So there are these, um, there are these biases. We, we bring more to our content and our message and the interaction than just the uh, transcript of it, if you will, there's, there's more there. Uh, when the computer executes this kind of artificial caring without really caring or understanding our feelings, uh, the, sorry, the second example, the first example is the two therapists. The second is a person who has a dog and they come home at the end of the day And they are maybe, you know, kind of miserable. They open the door, but their dog is happy to see them, you know, tails wagging, jumping up on them. Then the dog sees that the dog's owner is miserable or bad day. Um, And what does the dog do? The dog puts its ears back, its tail down, you know, kind of looks sort of sad. And then the owner starts to feel a little more understood by the dog feels better. Now, The dog has just done something very powerful, showing a kind of dog-like empathy. Um, But do we think the dog understands our feelings, knows the definition of emotion, (laughs) knows what empathy is, any of this stuff? No, no, it doesn't know this. Um, What does it know compared to people? Well, it's at least alive, right? We think it has a whole lot more going on inside it than a machine. Uh, We truly believe that. At the same time, we recognize this huge difference between it and us, and yet it can perform a service that helps a person regulate their emotion and, and feel better. So I put the robot kind of in that category of something that doesn't really know, but we can tune it uh, like a like a like man's best friend, the dog um, has been domesticated uh, to do certain things that that help people feel better.
2: But resident, and, uh, you, you know, somebody on Facebook, a Christian, their dog just died recently, and and. Just said that this person was very sad to lose this wonderful pet, and another Christian just just put a, a remark on saying, "Well, you'll be together again someday." You know, uh, I I don't rebel against that as a Christian, uh, but I wonder uh, is there even a difference with a robot that your 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 robot friend uh, you will probably not ever see that robot again <laughs> when, when it breaks down and dies
1: yeah will we be happy to you know uh just get a totally new robot or does it need to be <laughs> up and and also and i i don't know if we're allowed to ask each other questions but rich you know people like you who've studied so much more of this immortality uh you know some of my geek friends who are christians have likened it to You know, God backing us up, right? Backing up who we are. If we know God, it's sort of like God getting to know us and backing us up, uh, except that we're not just simply a digital backup. And then being given uh, an imperishable body at at some point, right? With something different. It may look like this, but be fundamentally different. And, you know, is that like backing up the machine, you know, getting new hardware, you know, people... Uh, make these metaphors, and maybe these are just our very imperfect, lacking knowledge way of trying to approximate something we don't fully understand. Right. Uh, Richard, uh,
0: before you answer that, I'm going to ladle on some of our audience questions as well. So we have a bunch of audience questions that have come in, and uh, some of them are right on the theme of what Rosalind has just asked you. So we'll ladle one on top of... Um, of Rosalinds, and this comes from John Tung, and John uh, asked, it seems like the that only theology has maintained an important distinction between God and the human by pointing out the creator and creature distinction. Would it help in how we think about computers by likewise maintaining an important distinction between humans and their creation, such as computers? So sort of combining um, Rosalinds and Jungs, what would you say?
2: Well, I... I yeah, I think that's an, a, a very helpful way to put it. I do think that in our, Rosalind said earlier, you know, we're, we're created to be makers, uh, not supreme makers, but makers under the, the rule and the guidance of God. And I do think that when we make things like robots, uh, we might learn some metaphors or analogies to God's creative activity. Uh, In certain ways, it will always be incomprehensible to us, but it may illuminate certain things. So I would have no problem saying, for example, that uh, God might someday, uh, that, that God might be backing us up and that the resurrection would be uniting the backup with a new physical body. It's not something I'd preach at a funeral, though. Uh, I, I think it's just an interesting kind of intellectual exercise to play around with many of these uh, metaphors and analogies insofar as they help us as we're thinking theologically and philosophically about that. I'm not sure they're pastorally uh, very helpful to people. I just think uh, what we have to say is, uh, you know, you, you'll go to be with the Lord and you will be raised up. And, uh, and yet we can have good discussions about what robotics might even uh, illuminate about that. Yeah.
0: So Rosalyn, this next question is from you, from Jonathan Pavlik, and he asks: does there exist any momentum in the transhumanist community about how to transcend the common human spirit? It seems like transhumanism has to date focused principally on physical and mental enhancements, but our human composition includes a spiritual dimension as well.
1: Yeah, I agree. It includes a spiritual dimension as well. And among my science and engineering colleagues, they don't talk about that from what I've seen. In fact, they'll kind of look at you like you have two heads if you even bring it up. They, uh, While practicing science and engineering, a, a lot of sci- most scientists and engineers act like materialists. Um, some go so far as to believe in materialism, like that's all there is. I don't think... There's any evidence, that's all there is. That's a faith position. So um, it's and it's unnecessary myopic faith position, but it is a, a commonly held position. So a lot of people would say, you know, we are mind, we are body. Um, we've, I've gotten in lots of conversations, many of them who thought emotion either should just be completely ignored or didn't really exist uh, to at least include not only physical and cognitive, but affective. And I believe there's also a spiritual side of us and we just don't know how to deal with it. We don't have the material tools for it. We don't have any, we don't really know what it does functionally and we need functional descriptions to implement code for things. So the best we could kind of do right now is have a program print out and say, of course I have a spirit, you know, <laughs> like, you know, which is completely meaningless, right? It's just a program executing uh printing out something we might think someone with a spirit would say. Uh, so we just really don't know how to deal with that. If anybody on this call has ideas how to deal with that, I'd love to hear your input.
0: Excellent. Yeah, That's fascinating. Uh, Rosalind. the next questions are from you. They're from Eva Napier. And Eva asks if you could share about the most ethically questionable human enhancement idea that may have the possibility of being played out in the near future as well as where you would draw the line between creating as faithful subcreators, imagining God and his creative nature, and creating that is far more grasping for godhood.
1: Small order. Yeah, oh, golly. Um, whew, lots of stuff here. It, it's funny, there are some ethical lines in my own work that very few people know about, and I don't actually... I find myself not wanting to talk about them because I don't want people to take them and do them. I don't know any way to prevent people from doing them. Probably the best public ethical line is the uh, engineering of one's children to want to go in and modify uh, you know, the embryo and um, build a child who might be enhanced in certain ways. And I'm really troubled. <laughs> By what's going on there, I'm uh, troubled by a lot of what's going on inside these these cases of modifying our human race. We do have a lot of people who like who develop CRISPR and things like that, who are the gene editing technologies that are very ethically minded and trying really hard to build tools to prevent uh, disastrous things from happening. And you know they're on this, uh, but it is a case that ultimately. These powerful tools that we have can be put in the hands of people who use them to enhance their own power, to enhance their own godlikeness, if you will, um, versus use them. And again, this comes back to what kind of people are we educating and and shaping in our society uh, versus seeing other needs around them that are greater and putting their brains and, and minds and imaginations and hands into serving greater needs, greater causes, rather than self-enhancement and self-promotion and self-power, which is what seems to be what's driving some of these worst uses of technology, whether it's a gene editing technology or an affect sensing and recognition or regulation technology, uh, Mm -hmm. or an AI, when it's used to just, you know, build the power of someone who already has a lot of power, like some national leaders are extremely interested in doing. Uh, to preserve their power, then that's pointing to a real problem. Uh, And sometimes it doesn't have to be the most advanced technology um, to enable great evil to be done either, right? We saw what Hitler was able to do uh, with gas chambers, right? And regular uh, weapons. So the power of AI and these technologies to just amplify and scale uh, evil is, is huge. And, but it's not the cause of the evil; uh, it's the tool of it. I think. So I think you know we need to address the whole the whole issue there. Um, when it comes to the latter part of the question, the creating versus grasping for for godhood, um, you know, I I think it's important to get each individual who's a creator to reflect on why they're creating. What are they creating for? Uh, and try to get people past their resumes, (laughs) you know, thinking about greater causes and not just creating an isolation, really getting community input. I think everybody here should be willing to ask the creators they know around them, the makers around them, you know, why are you building that? Why are you interested in that? Why do you think that's important? Where do you think that could go that's good? Where do you think that could go that's a problem? Uh, And let's hold each other accountable and help our society as a whole listen and hear and understand our needs uh, and that none of us is God. I'm reminded of this great poster. A friend of mine had the business school of all places, uh, but we need it in schools besides the business school. The poster on her wall right when you walked in uh, said, there is a God and you are not him. <laughs> How many business school faculty needed to see that? I think we all need to be reminded of that, and especially those of us who are making very powerful things.
2: I, I want to say, I think we're living, I think this, this is a, a, this, an exciting discussion, uh, and that uh, we, we as Christians should not be intimidated. We don't have to be intimidated by this. Uh, we want to take advantage of all that the new technologies and discussions of artificial intelligence have to offer us in the light of our understanding of God's will for humankind. And so I'll uh, I'll add the voice of the Apostle John to this. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but when he shall appear, we shall be like him. And I think it's very important to focus on Jesus as the one who reveals to us what flourishing humanity is really all about. And as long as we keep our eyes on Jesus, uh, we're not going to be... not going to be drawn aside into deviations into other kinds of ends or purposes or telloi of of human event, of human prospects, but uh, everything that honors the God who sent Jesus into the world uh, in the in the goal of promoting human flourishing, uh, we are we're on the side of all of that, and we're also aware of our fallenness and the dangers of not. Uh, looking to Jesus.
0: Thank you, Rich. Thank you, Roslyn. It's been really a pleasure to talk with you both. We hope you enjoy this discovery and doxology series, and that it helps to inspire great conversations for you
2: too.